first speaker today uh, is very, very able to talk on one of the favorite topics of the golf side, and that is Paris Horseman. Donna Corbin is the Associate Curator of European Decorative Arts at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, where she has been on staff since 1981 and has curated a number of exhibitions, including a pure taste of form and ornament, Josiah Wedgwood and the Antique 2010, a most exquisite display, European Ceramics at the Centennial Exhibition 2001, and 18th century French silver from the collection of Rudolf and Wilhelmina. Oh, oh, I knew I was going to run into that, but I'll let her tell you what collection that comes from. It's too early to do a pronunciation. She has taught the history of interior and furniture design at the Moore College of Art Design in Philadelphia, a member of the executive committee of the Board of the American Ceramic Circle since 2002. She serves as editor of the American Ceramic Circle newsletter and has organized four symposia and five international trips for the organization. She is presently collaborating with colleagues at the Philadelphia Museum of Art on an exhibition on the subject of the hunt and is working on a catalog of the museum's collection of 18th century French porcelain. Her topic today is Received from Different Factories in France, 19th Century French Porcelain in the American South. Please welcome Donna Corbin. Okay. Good morning. Um, my talk this morning, as you just heard, um, is on the topic of um, uh, Paris porcelain. But before I get started, I just want to acknowledge John Weber Keefe, the late curator of decorative arts at the New Orleans Museum of Art, who died suddenly earlier this year. I didn't know John, but I do know that he had a passion for Paris porcelain. He formed a wonderful collection of the material for the New Orleans Museum of Art, pieces of which are on the screen now. And it was really he who should be giving this talk this morning. Porcelain in the form of soft paste porcelain, such as the pieces seen here, was first made in Paris in 1724 at an establishment founded by manufacturers based in Saint-Cloud, a, vi a village located on the Seine west of Paris. The production of porcelain in Paris really got underway <clears throat> only went into full swing after the discovery in 1769 of deposits of kaolin, an essential ingredient in the production of hard paste porcelain in the Limousin, a region of, of France whose capital is Limoges. In the 18th century, Paris porcelain, of which the vases on the left are an example, can be simply defined as hard paste porcelain manufactured or decorated in the city of Paris. However, it becomes more complicated in the 19th century when it, more, when it might be more accurately defined as hard paste porcelain generally decorated in Paris, although not invariably manufactured there, and originating from either factories with at least an official Paris address or else with merely sales rooms located in Paris. This definition reflects the complex interrelationship in this period between factories, independent decorators, and retailers, and I'll come back to that in a minute. The ice cream coolers on the right, for example, which date from about 1815, were decorated by the independent Parisian decorator Philippe Soiron. The porcelain itself was, meant, was made at an unidentified Paris Parisian factory. The coolers, which are painted with scenes of the hunt, were originally part of a dessert service made for the Duchesse de Berry. Also complicating the issue is the fact that in the 19th century, factories that produced 
porcelain that consciously mimicked that made in Paris sprang up in other French centers, most, specific, most specifically in and around Limoges, and in other parts of Europe, again, most specifically in Bohemia. Throughout the period, while most of the large and important Paris factories marked their porcelain, in fact, they were mandated to do so, that was not usually the case with the smaller Parisian factories. For example, these marvelous vases with chinoiserie decoration, which are in the collection of the Queen of England, are unmarked, but were likely made in Paris at the end of the 18th century. And many of the factories located outside Paris also did not necessarily mark their products. Therefore, a certain amount of porcelain that has been attributed to Paris over the years was in fact made elsewhere. Paris porcelain is sometimes referred to this in, to, in this country as Vieux Paris or Old Paris, a name that was likely coined by the trade in the late 19th century, by which time porcelain was largely no longer made in Paris, which is perhaps one of the reasons why it was given the designation Old. The 18th century Parisian factories had a number of distinctive things in common. The first was the fact that their major competition was the French Royal fact Porcelain Factory at Sèvres. Several pieces of porcelain made at the Royal Factory in the 18th century are on the screen now. This factory, which was to become the foremost porcelain factory in Europe in the second half of the 18th century, was founded at the Chateau of Vincennes to the east of Paris in 1740. In 1745, the factory was granted the first of its royal privileges, and that was the exclusive right in France to the manufacture of porcelain in the Saxon manner, that being a reference to Meissen porcelain. In 1753, Louis XV purchased shares of the factory, and the factory became officially known as a manufacturer de roi, with the right to use the royal, uh, royal cipher as its mark. In 1756, the factory moved to Sèvres on the opposite side of Paris, which was conveniently located between Paris and Versailles and close to Bellevue, a chateau belonging to Louis XV's mistress, Madame de Pompidour, who had been an early supporter of the factory. It was Pompidour, by the way, who commissioned the biscuit figure, which is um, on, the, on the right, uh, an allegory of friendship, a theme that she promoted, uh, that was promoted by her beginning in 1750 when her sexual relationship with the king ended. In 1759, Louis XV bought the, fact, the Sev factory outright. The manufactory, which survived the French Revolution, in part because in its value as a national treasure was recognized even in those turbulent times, still exists today. Despite the king's support, and as it did periodically throughout its history, in the late 1760s and 1770s, the Sev factory experienced financial difficulties in part because of the competition from the newly founded Parisian factories. The administrators at Sèvres realized that the factory's success depended in large, large measure on maintaining an effective monopoly on the production of porcelain. And to that end, up until 1766, there was a ban on, founding of new, on the founding of new porcelain factories. However, in that year, the ban was overturned by Henri Bertin, Louis XV's minister responsible for the Sèvres factory, on the condition that the administrators of any new porcelain factories registered them with the local authorities and that they marked their porcelain. At the same time, Sev, whose administrators complained that the Parisian factories were luring away workers with promise of higher wages and that molds, gold, and colors were being stolen and resold to the smaller factories, was granted a monopoly on the use of gilding, decoration executed by painting in miniature and in colored flowers, colored grounds, and finally sculpture. In short, the areas in which Sev was most successful. 
Competing factories were only permitted to allowed to paint in monochrome with a single color. This brings us to the second thing that many of the Parisian factories had in common, and that was a general disregard for the said privileges. Whether, whether the already mentioned one issued in 1766 or a number of subsequent ones, including Enerlet of 1784, in which the porcelain factories were given orders to move to transfer their establishment to a minimum of 15 leagues outside the city. The most successful method the Parisian factory administrators used to compete with the royal factory and to circumvent the privileges was to obtain prote protection for themselves from a member of the royal family. Having a royal patron was not surprisingly good for business since the factory was then guaranteed of re receiving orders from this person and from, his, from those in his or her circle. And in addition, the factory then had the right to display the patron's coat of arms in their establishment and to employ the patron's initials as their mark. For example, the Comte d'Artois, one of Louis XVI's younger brothers, and the future Charles X patronized a porcelain factory on the fashionable Rue de Faubourg Saint-Denis in Paris. His son, the Duc d'Anguilhem, was the protector of a factory on the Rue de Bonny in Paris. This despite the fact that at the time he bestowed his protection, he was only six years old. <laughs> Those were the days when you could interest a six-year-old boy in a porcelain factory. Um, the Comte de Provence, another of Louis XVI's younger brothers and the few, uh, later Louis XVIII, lent his support to, a factory, uh, of, to the factory of Clignancourt, and the Duc d'Orléans gave his to the factory in the Rue Amelot. The best known of these establishments was on the Rue Thiru, which had as its patron Marie Antoinette. As an aside, the 18th century porcelain factories are, are often known today both by the name of the royal protector, owner, or, map, or director, as well as the location. The factory operated under the protection of Marie Antoinette is thus referred to as both the Queen's factory and as the Rue Thiru factory. On the screen are objects made in Paris in the 1770s, and as you can see, in violation of the privilege granted to the royal factory, both employ polychrome enamel painting of figures and flowers, as well as gilding. In the last three decades of the 18th century, the support of the royal patrons, coupled with the increasing success of the Parisian factories, had the effect that with each new privilege issued on behalf of the royal factory, there was a further dilution of the restrictions on porcelain manufacturer favoring said. For example, the already mentioned privilege of, 18, of 1784, in which the factories were ordered to transfer their activities out of Paris, left the royal factory with only a monopoly on luxury goods, a rather vague designation that included vases, pictures, or plaques, and figures. Along with this weakening of the restrictions also came a decrease in the level of enforcement, which had never been much more than half-hearted at best. As an example, on February the 12th of 1780, the local Rusinger factory was raided for infringements of the privileges, and over 2,000 pieces of porcelain were confiscated. The factory was fined and ordered to suspend production. However, there is no evidence that the factory's activity was affected in any way by the entire episode. Of all, all of the royal privileges, of course, were swept away by the onset of the French Revolution. It is difficult to say with any certainty how many porcelain factories were operating in Paris in the 18th century. Porcelain factories came and went, and many of those we know today have complicated uh, histories of ownership, as I will demonstrate in a second. 
just as a reference, according to one report, as a result of the 1766 privilege requiring administrators of the royal factories to register with the local authorities between 1768 and 1781, 18 porcelain factory registrations were registered and were recorded in the division of Paris. 11 of these were in Paris itself. And just in case you imagine that these establishments resemble factories, the images on the screen now are back and front views of the Hotel Bergeret in Paris, which housed the porcelain factory of the Duc d'Anguilene, and a plate from, the book in, from a book entitled La de la Porcelaine that was published in 1771. And you see a, the workshops of the painters and modelers of a porcelain factory. The workshops are housed in what appear to be marvelous paneled rooms with plasterwork ceilings and these large windows, actually quite an enviable working environment. Among the earliest of the porcelain, Parisian porcelain factories was one established by Pierre-Antoine Anon. Anon, like many of those involved in the nascent hard-paced porcelain industry in France, was not surprisingly an immigrant from the eastern part of Europe. As a reminder, hard-paced porcelain was first successfully produced in Europe at a factory located in Meissen, Germany in 1710. And by 1769, the year in which kaolin deposits were discovered in Lemoisin, Porcelain of this type, that is hard paste porcelain, was being made in factories throughout Germany as well as in Austria and Italy. It is only natural then that workers from German factories would have migrated to France once the opportunity for production opened up there. Pierre Antoine Anon was a member of an important family of faience and porcelain factory managers, owners and managers. In 1721, his grandfather founded the first hard paste porcelain factory in France in Strasbourg, in eastern, I'm sorry, yes, in eastern France, <coughs> where he employed um, Kaolin from Germany. Pierre-Antoine opened his Parisian factory on the route of Faubourg-Saint-Denis in June of 1772 with the financial of support of the Comte de Voisinon and an advisor to the king by the name of Monsieur Dumois. This plate and charming teapot were made at Anon's factory. Anon's arrangement was short-lived, and between the founding of the factory in 1771 and 1779, when it received the, patron, the protection of the Comte d'Artois, it went through a dizzying number of patrons, uh, sorry, <coughs> patrons, partners, <laughs> partners and managers. During the period in which it was under the patronage of the Comte, the factory employed the CP mark, you see here, for Charles Philippe, the Comte's given name, and the products of the factory, like this urine basin, were very high quality. The size of the Parisian, uh, the Parisian porcelain factories naturally varied, and the size of a particular factory at any one time depended on a variety of factors. <coughs> In 1775, during the period of Anon's ownership of the Rue Saint-Denis uh, factory, it is reported to have employed some 38 craftsmen, including three throwers, five molders, one repairer, 13 painters, one gilder, five kiln men, one enameler, one woodcutter, one craftsman in charge of the paste, one sagger maker, five laborers, and one modeler. As an indication of the success of the factory, in 1785, while it was under the protection of the Comte d'Artois, the factory employed 30 modelers alone. What remained of the Comte d'Artois factory after the revolution was purchased in 1798 by Marc a native of Alsace in eastern France. Chaucher produced porcelain in the Rue Saint-Denis location for about a decade, and in 1806, he opened a retail outlet on the Boulevard des Italiens, seen here in engraving. 
where he also sold porcelain made at factories other than his own. With a new support, renewed support of the Comte d'Artois, who had survived the revolution with his family by fleeing to Savoie, and the Comte's daughter-in-law, the Duchesse de Berry, Chaucher became a ceramist by appointment to the royal family, which is why he was permitted to exhibit the French royal coat of arms on the exterior of his shop. In about 1810, Chaucher ceased to make porcelain altogether, and from that time forward, he merely decorated blanks produced elsewhere. Chaucher made porcelain was marked with the manufacturer's name in full, such as you see here, as was porcelain merely decorated by him, and on occasion, Chaucher's mark appears on pieces that were merely retailed by them. Chaucher's pieces were praised for the beauty of their forms, the vivacity of their colors, and the excellence of their ornaments. In an account of the exposition of products of industry, a sort of trade fair or industrial exhibition that was held at the Palais de Louvre in 1819, this fair was one in an influential series of such events that took place in France beginning at the end of the 18th century, precursors as such to the international exhibitions or world's fairs that were held in various world capitals, world capitals beginning in 1851. Two of the Chaucher vases that were shown in 1819 are seen in the engraving on the left of the screen, a pair of unmarked vases that are attributed to Chaucher based on the similarity to the one on the right in the engraving is in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston today. Um, these magnificent vases were owned by David Sears, Jr. and his wife, Anne Winthrop, Bostonians who traveled in Europe in the late 18-teens and in 1818 began construction of a mansion on Beacon Street for which they ordered uh, furnishings from Paris. Chaucher sent his son Victor to the United States in 1829 to promote the family business, and while there and in Cuba and in Mexico, Victor became a fervent abolitionist. Mark Chaucher died in 1832. Two years later, Victor liquidated the business that had been around in some, some form since 1772 and went on to have a brilliant political career in France. The French Revolution had far-reaching repercussions on the luxury industries of which, at that point, porcelain was one. As I mentioned before, the Royal Porcelain Factory itself was spared by the National Convention in, that in 1793 deemed it one of the glories of France. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the factory struggled in the 1790s for a variety of reasons, not least of which were declining sales in the absence of the aristocratic patronage it had enjoyed for much of its history. While the revolution struck a similar blow to the Parisian factories, the abolition of royal privileges and an abundance of promissory notes issued by the government resulted in a proliferation of new porcelain factories in Paris at the end of the 18th century. However, as a result of adverse economic conditions during the Napoleonic Wars, the first 15 years of the 19th century were difficult ones for France as well, and the circumstances had the effect of winnowing out the less well-established and managed of the porcelain factories. Thus, before the revolution, there were some 15 private factory porcelain factories in France. This number grew to 41 around the turn of the century. However, by 1814, only about half, or somewhere around 20 of these, remained. In the early decades of the 19th century, along with Chaucher, other prominent and uh, uh, successful Parisian factories included Dagote, who produced their own porcelain as well as decorated pieces produced elsewhere. Following the tradition of the royal patronage or protection that had been established in the previous century, the Dagote firm enjoyed the protection of Empress Josephine, first wife of Napoleon I, a fact that is advertised on the facade of their shop, which is seen here. 
The Dagote firm's work is represented here by a pair of vases that are painted with these rather sentimental pastoral scenes of mothers and children, and a page of cup designs. Cups of this, uh, such as these are known as cabinet cups. They were intended for display. Uh, they were made by many of Dagote's contemporaries, and the designs really served to demonstrate the nearly boundless creativity and inventiveness of the early 19th century Parisian porcelain factories. A pair of Dagote vases on the left, which are sort of re reinterpretations of Greek red figure vases, demonstrate the continuing, continuing fashion in this period for ancient art, and the centerpiece basket on the right reflects the popularity of Egyptian-inspired wear that was created by Napoleon Bonaparte's successful campaign there in 1798. This clock in the form of a vase by Darfrere is decorated on the reverse with a trophy, um, a military trophy, a type of decoration that was particularly fashionable during the Empire period. And this is probably a good place to make note of the profusion of gilding on porcelain in this period. This is perhaps in part a reaction to the austerity of the late 18th century in combination with the fact that, as I mentioned, before the revolution, factories other than the royal factory weren't technically allowed to use uh, gilding. Uh, so once the Parisian establishment, establishments were given the right, they appeared to have taken full advantage of it. The clock, by the way, is in the collection of the New Orleans Museum. The Nast factory, which made these splendid vases with um, typographical scenes, which are typical of the period, uh, was another of the important manufacturers, as was Deal and Gerhardt, the factory that before the revolution had been under the protection of the Duc d'Anguilene. On the right is a 1797 portrait of uh, Christophe Deal, and several pieces of porcelain um, produced at the factory sit on a shelf above him. There are a large-scale biscuit figure of a reading child an elegant um, yellow-brown hemispherical cup and saucer um, of the same shape as the one on the left of the screen, and a, a barely visible toll vase with marbleized decoration. Deal devoted himself to uh, researching colors, and he is portrayed with his palette and various containers for the materials he used in his research. Two other pieces from the Deal and Gerhardt factory, a biscuit bust of Napoleon, and a plate from a service of topographical scenes made for um, Empress Josephine. Independent decorating firms such as Schulcher, uh, Fouilly, whose work is seen here, uh, on a vase made by the Nast firm, and Rioué, who you will hear about more about this morning, proliferated in the 19th century, such that in, the 18, uh, such that in 1850, the city directory listed 17 porcelain manufacturers in Paris, eight of which were comprised of only one or two craftsmen, on the other hand, there were 158 porcelain decorators listed. For a variety of reasons, paramount among them, the cost of fuel, labor, and real estate, the focus of porcelain manufacture had by, manufacturing had by the 1850s moved beyond the Paris city limits, and most particularly to Limoges, where it would remain into the 20th century. Perhaps the most prolific and well-known of the 19th century Parisian porcelain manufacturers was one known by the name of Jacques Petit. This Jacques Petit tea service, in a rather restrained style, suggesting that it was made early in the firm, firm's history, is in the collection of the New Orleans Museum. The Petit firm, which had factories first at Bellevue outside of Paris and then at Fontainebleau, is included here because it conforms to that definition of Paris porcelain manufacture in that it maintained shops in Paris. 
The creative spirit behind Jacques Petit was Jacques Mardichet, a painter by training who established himself as a designer, decorator, and porcelain maker in Bellevue around, 17, around 1830. He took as the name of his firm, his first name, and Petit, his wife's uh, family name. In the same year, he established his porcelain business. Mardichet published a collection of designs, a page of designs for books and lamps from that publication, is on the screen. The designs exhibit a sort of horror vacui. No surface of the, of the chairs is left unadorned of the sort that would inform much of the Jacob Petit porcelain. Within a few short years of its founding, the early successes of the Petit firm necessitated a move, and by June of 1734, Mardichet had relocated his operations, as I said earlier, to a facility in Fontainebleau. The move to Fontainebleau coincided with the first appearance of Jacques Petit's porcelain on the national stage at the Industrial Exhibition of 1834. For its exhibit at the fair, the firm received an honorable mention. On the screen now are a pair of vases and a pair of potpourri, which are similar to the designs um, exhibited by Petit at the fair as recorded in the engraving in the center. The Petit firm was known to have sold white wares to other Parisian dealers, which were subsequently decorated by them, and the Petit pieces I'm showing here I think were probably decorated by Dagote. In the 1834 exhibition catalog, Petit's work, which was, a, which was infused, I think you could say, with a sort of novelty and boldness that had not been seen before, was described as extremely remarkable. One way of describing it. Petit's work was a radical departure from the classically inspired porcelain of the first three decades of the 19th century, pieces of which we saw a few minutes ago. And it had then, as it has now, its admirers and detractors. Just as an aside, these four pieces of Jacques Petit porcelain were among the literally dozens, uh, many of them of massive scale, owned by the Mexican film star Maria Feliz, who died in 2002. And uh, her collection of Jacques Petit porcelain was sold by Christie's in New York in 2009. And the catalog is, if you like Jacques Petit furniture, is a good source for um, Jacques Petit porcelain. Um, one contemporary critic may have had these vases in mind when he described the contours of Jacques Petit's porcelain as bizarre and difficult. Mardichet drew inspiration from a wide range of ceramic sources but he is most often associated with the Rococo revival style that he helped to popularize through porcelain designs such as these. Marnachet was ultimately a victim of his own stupendous success. He became involved in a number of costly lawsuits against those who plagiarized his work, and in, 18, and in March of 1848, he filed for bankruptcy, although he continued in business for, in a number of locations for at least another 15 years. Now I'm going to turn to look at Parisian or French porcelain in America. Up until the time of the Revolution, ceramic choices in America were limited by the mercantile system that was imposed by the British. This meant that Americans in the market for ceramics uh, had two basic choices. Either ceramics produced in a number of English centers, earthenwares and stonewares from Staffordshire, Delftware from London and elsewhere, porcelain from Bow and other English factories, or Chinese porcelain, that came to this country by way of the British East India Company. The soup plate, for example, was made around 1735 in China for George Clark, Lieutenant uh, Governor of New York. Once the British, because of the disruption caused by the war, lost control of the trade, the Americans increasingly rejected English products in favor of those from France. 
The change in taste was in no doubt tied to a large degree to the political shift that acknowledged the decisive role that French had played in the war. The increased French presence in America during the war also had the effect of introducing at least the upper levels of America society to all things French. And the current French classical style took on a particular significance for many in the new American Republic. It didn't hurt that the French objects were in many ways superior in style and sophistication to the English, and I hope I haven't insulted anybody by saying that. Among the earliest subscribers to the French taste were diplomatic travelers, including Benjamin Franklin, the minister plenipotentiary to France, who returned home to Philadelphia in 1785 with 128 boxes of acquisitions, and Thomas Jefferson, who followed in 1789 with 86 cases. George Washington was the first of many American presidents to own French porcelain, which he received from a variety of sources. In 1782, Washington was presented with a coffee and tea service decorated with gilded borders, flowers, and his monogram by the Comte de Coustin, a French officer who had served under Rochambeau in the, in the Revolution and the owner of the Niederville porcelain factory near Strasbourg, France. Some years later, Gouverneur Morris in France to negotiate tobacco sales and shopping on Washington's behalf wrote him, I think it is of very great importance to fix the taste of our country properly, and I think your example will go very far in that respect. To that end, and on that visit, Morris purchased from the Deal and Gerhardt factory for Washington the two biscuit figures on the screen. They were part of a larger dessert centerpiece. In addition, the simple white porcelain with a gilded dentate border that President and Mrs. Washington used for important dinners was purchased by them from the French legation in New York in May of 1790, after the Comte de Moustier, the French ambassador to the United States, was recalled to France. The butter dish from this service is on the screen. James Madison, the fourth president, ordered an elegant dinner and dessert service with a stylized border of medallions and palms from the Nast factory in 1806 for his own use. And in 1817, James Monroe ordered a dessert service for 30 persons from the firm of Dagote and Honoré. This service, the first uh, state or official service that survived, is, survives, is decorated with symbols of the, of the nation, including the arms of the United States, presented as an ascendant eagle, and vignettes in the borders that represent strength, agriculture, commerce, art, and science. The amaranth border refers to both a flower and a color, which were thought to never fade. By 1826, the preponderance of French objects in the White House was such that Congress stipulated in, a, in an Appropriations Act that purchases of White House furnishings were to be made to be American-made as much as practicable. As it happens, all nine of the 19th century state services were made by French porcelain factories. <coughs> Alongside the purchases of French porcelain made by American diplomats were a handful that document those of wealthy and socially influential Americans who, beginning at the end of the 18th century, traveled in ever greater numbers to the European continent. One such traveler who was known to me was Thomas Hansen Perkins, a Boston merchant and prominent member of the Federalist Party who visited Paris in, 1780, in 1795 as part of an extended European tour. In the collections of the Philadelphia Museum of Art are two large biscuit figures representing the toilet of Venus and Diana at her bath made at the Sèvres porcelain factory that were likely purchased by Perkins in Paris during his stay there. 
In his journal, he, re he records a visit to the Royal Factory on April the 26th in the company of fellow Bostonian Richard Codman, during which each of them bought a number of trifles. Codman's purchases that day are recorded in the said sales records, but sadly, Perkins's aren't. While it seems likely that Perkis, Perkins purchased the, factor, the figures directly from the said factory, it is possible that he, looked, uh, that he acquired them elsewhere in Paris during his visit. It is unlikely that he would have acquired them in this country, since objects of this quality would not, were not generally available here at that time. The one possible exception to this was that Perkins could have acquired the groups through James Swan, uh, the Boston merchant financier who, for a brief period in the 1790s, was the official uh, purchasing agent of the French government in the United States. And in that capacity, he negotiated shipments of goods such as wheat, tobacco, and other commodities to France in exchange for luxury items, many of which had been confiscated from members of French royalty and nobility, and which were then being stored in warehouses in France. Intriguingly, on the bottom of the museum's figure of Venus, the one on the left, is the incised outline of a building resembling the Bastille, and the inscription which translates the taking of the Bastille 14, of, 14 July of 1789 with the date July of 1790, an obvious reference to the storming of the Bastille prison by an angry mob in the early years of the French, in the early days of the French Revolution. How this inscription came to be on the figure is unknown, but its meaning certainly would not have escaped Perkins, who had witnessed the execution by guillotine of 16 members of the Revolutionary Tribunal after the fall of Robespierre. He later wrote with some understatement that his visit took place during a very interesting period in the French Revolution. In spite of increased travel, the American community in Paris prior to the 19th century still must have been relatively small. And from contemporary accounts, it would appear that visits to one or more of the Par Parisian porcelain factories was on most travelers' itinerary. Mary Stead Pickney of uh, Charleston, South Carolina, who accompanied her husband, General Charles Coatsworth Pickney, to Paris during the time that he served as the American ambassador to the French, to France, and who also encountered Richard Codman in her travels, records one such visit to the factory of the Duc de Anguillem in 1797 where she saw cups and saucers with beautiful miniature figures rivaling the first masters on ivory as well as vases. And she describes the process as she saw it, from the lump of clay which they were rolling about as if for a tart, till it took the form of a beautiful vase we had so much admired before. She goes on to say that if I remain in France, I shall certainly visit the factory, the manufacturer of Sèvres, which is generally accounted superior to that of Angoulême. The fruit cooler on the screen, which was made about 1795 at the factories of the Comte d'Artois, whose market bears, descended in the Pinckney Frost family. The cooler is decorated with stylized cornflowers of a type commonly known as, in France as barbeau. The, the pattern was popular beginning in the late 18th century when it was employed by a number of French factories, and it was seemingly one of the most popular patterns for French porcelain owned by Americans. On the screen now are pieces of a coffee and tea service, which, had a history of, which has a history of ownership in the Verplank family of New York, a garniture of baskets that descended in the Van Rensselaer family, and a stand with podocrem that descended in the Wrigley family of Maryland. The Barbeau pattern obtained such popularity in the United States that it was among the French patterns and shapes copied by the short-lived Tucker porcelain factory that was established in uh, Philadelphia in 1825. 
At the end of the 18th century, French porcelain would become increasingly, would, would become available to some extent through re retailers, some of them with French immigrant names located in places like Philadelphia and New York. And advertisements placed by retailers and auction houses also began to appear periodically in these centers. Sadly, these advertisements generally provide scant information about the porcelain that was being offered, and so we know little about what was specifically available. The firm of Honoré, who in partnership with Dagote produced the Monroe uh, State Service, we saw pieces of a few minutes ago, and whose firm in 1846 produced a marvelous state dinner and dessert service with botanical decoration of President James Polk, pieces of which are on the screen now, had a large export business to the United States. Some indication of the scale of Honoré's American business is given by the fact that it was recorded that in the early 1830s, his firm was supplying upwards of 15,000 cups and saucers to this market. Honoré himself stated that he was producing goods to designs which the Americans had been sending me and which resemble English designs, but again, it's difficult to know specifically what these look like. Easier to identify as products intended specifically for American market are those with decoration whose subject matter had significance here. For example, pairs of vases like the ones seen here with portraits of notable Americans, including the likes of George Washington, John Adam, and Thomas Jefferson, as the, as, or those with scenes of American monuments. The vase on the right, uh, also in the collection of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, known as a Medici vase, one of the most popular and long-lived of the uh, vase forms of the late 18th century. Um, it is decorated back and front with topographical scenes of Philadelphia. On the side we are looking at, there's a view of the second bank of the United States. Architect um, was uh, William Strickland. And on the side, we can't see as a view of Fairmount and the Schuylkill River Dam and Waterworks. Both of these images, um, by the way, would appear a decade or so later on Staffordshire blue and white transfer wares. You may be wondering when I was actually going to get around to addressing the subject the title of my talk promised, and that is 19th century Parisian porcelain, Paris porcelain in the American South. Was I, when I was invited some months ago, I think you've sort of heard this story before, um, to give this talk, it was my hope that somehow I would actually be able to document the existence of French or Paris porcelain in 19th century Louisiana. As it turns out, and not for a lack of trying, I was largely unsuccessful in doing so. Few references to the porcelain appear in, state, in estate inventories, and there is little French porcelain that can be definitively identified as having a 19th century Louisiana provenance. One exception to this is this marvelous pair of Jacques Petit candelabra vases, now in the collection of the New Orleans Museum, which are known to have been purchased by the Louisiana politician Duncan Farrar Kenner in Paris in, eight, in seven, sorry, 1845 for Ashland, his plantation in Darrow, Louisiana. According to John Keefe, the vases originally supported Ormolu three-branch candelabra, which were fitted with bobesh from which uh, cut glass prisms hung. The bases are charming pastiches of 19th century Rococo and exoticism, and I adore the conceit of the ar uh, raised arms actually supporting the branches of the candelabra. I do know from having looked at literally thousands of advertisements in Louisiana newspapers dating from 1800 to 1865, that French porcelain was available for sale in New Orleans, both through retailers and at auction, and that towards the end of this period, a number of dealers advertised that French porcelain in all styles can be ordered from them. So in the last few minutes of my talk, I just want to focus on some of the information found in these advertisements. 
Uh, the first thing that should be noted is that the uh, references are never more specific about the origin of the porcelain than France. Uh, Paris is never mentioned as a source. One exception to this are two ads that appear in March and April of 1852, placed by the firm of P. Mallard and Company of 67 Royal Street that advertises Sevres, China, and porcelain dinner and tea sets for sale. Knowing what we do about the porcelain industry in 19th century France, we can speculate that beginning in the late 1830s, it is likely that much of what was available in this country was increasingly coming from manufacturers located outside of Paris. The majority of these were operating, of course, in Limoges. Also, none of the ads for French porcelain I found appeared before 1819, and perhaps as a reflection of the wealth of the region in the mid-19th century. In the 1850s, there is a notable increase in ads for French porcelain and for other types of luxury goods. Among the earliest ads for French porcelain is one that appears on June 14th of 1819, in which the firm of Townsend and Dummer of Canal Street advertises their stock on hand, consisting of china, glass, and earthenware, elegant and common French and English china, breakfast, dinner, and tea services of various qualities, blueprinted, enameled, and, enameled, and commonware of almost every description. This advertisement typifies, in many ways, those that subsequently appear over the next 45 years or so, in that they do not identify the type of decoration on the pieces they are offering. Elegant or common is about all the description that is ever given. In general, the retailers sold a range of ceramic types, and thus French porcelain is often sold side by side with English earthenware and crockery, and on occasion Dresden or German china. Clearly, the most common items for sale throughout the period were dinner and coffee and tea services in the 1850s. A larger range of shapes, some of them unidentifiable, became available. These mystery shapes include papyrus stands, hunting ornaments, lacrimal vases, and wedding cups. Among the more puzzling items were those that appeared among the Dresden and French China listed in an advertisement of December the 28th of 1850, announcing an upcoming auction. Offered there were a great variety of copies from Pompeii and Herculaneum, and I'm at a loss to know what this actually describes. Among the auction announcements listed on December the 8th of 1855 was one that read, large and magnificent sale of elegant and costly fancy articles suitable for Christmas and holiday presents containing the latest designs and novelties of European art, including an invoice of French china dining sets, dining and tea sets, mantle vases, colognes, baskets, tete-a-tete, coffees, etc. While again, it's difficult to know specifically what these items look like, based on a catalog of French porcelain published in 1855 by the Haviland Brothers, a, fact, a company founded in Limoges in 1842 by the American David Haviland, we have some sense of the appearance of the French porcelain that was available in this country, albeit in New York, around the middle of the 19th century. David Haviland established his firm for the express purpose of exporting French porcelain to America, and he only subsequently began to manufacture on his own. The firm went on to become one of the most important porcelain manufacturers in France in the second half of the 19th century, and they had, not surprisingly, a large presence at the 1876 Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia. In the lower left-hand corner of the catalog cover is a candelabra that is a similar model to the Jacob Petit one, uh, ones that Kenner, sorry, Duncan Kenner purchased in Paris in 1845, and the baskets, mantle vases, and tete-a-tetes 
that were auctioned off in New Orleans in December of 1855 may have looked like those illustrated on the cover of the Haviland catalog. The terrine scene on the left-hand side of the catalog cover, there in the middle, is of the same model as one in the collection of the New Orleans Museum here on the left, which is said to have been made at the factory of Edward Honoré, who I mentioned before had a large export business to America. A terrine of the same shape, in white, seen here on the right, was produced, was produced by the Limoges manufacturer Puya in the early 1850s. The terrine is from a service that was given the name American. Perhaps the rich ornament, rich mantle ornaments, clocks and stands, that were part of an extensive sale of French porcelain goods advertised on December the 9th of 1848, resembled the garniture on the right of the screen. I think the garniture can be accurately described as rich. It was, works, it was works like these and the wonderful gilt ground coffee service on the left, which dates from around the first decade of the 19th century, that justifiably created a worldwide fashion for French porcelain in the 19th century, from which Americans from north to south were not immune. Thank you very much. is a uh, coffee, a little coffee service like the one you see here, and then above that's actually a boxed one. So, well, I'm supposed to, can you explain what a tete is? Um, and then above that's a boxed one. So there's a little sort of, mm -hmm, with trays. Mm -hmm. Well, ice cream coolers were these forms that sort of uh, were invented in the 18th century. And the way that they're generally identified, first of all, is their shape. Uh, the question was, how do I know it was an ice cream cooler? How do you identify an ice cream cooler? And so it's based on their shape. And then also the fact that they have two lids. Um, and um, that's sort of the general Um, well, this, what is the difference between biscuit, hard, and soft porcelain, and soft paste porcelain? Uh, biscuit porcelain is unglazed porcelain. Uh, sometimes um, uh, it's called biscuit, um, or um, uh, anyway, so it's, it's biscuit um, uh, porcelain to us. Um, and hard and soft paste porcelain, um, hard paste porcelain is a type of porcelain that was produced first in China, um, which the Europeans couldn't quite figure out uh, how it was produced. It has uh, two essential ingredients, kaolin and fatunst. Finally, and this sort of formula was figured out at Meissen in 1710. Um, and then European manufacturers uh, started to produce um, hard paste porcelain. Um, but many of the factories, European factories, until they discovered how hard paste porcelain was made, or as in France, they discovered sources for kaolin, um, they made something called uh, soft paste porcelain, which is a sort of... Uh, False porcelain. So you say soft or soft? Soft. Yes, soft paste and hard paste. Why did the French keep bones in China and make it strong as Lake Rich did? Why didn't they? My mother always 
I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the case. The English did put bone in their china, but that was just right, right. Um, they didn't need to. Their porcelain held up just fine without that. Um, yeah, you can um, pour hot water in a French porcelain teacup, and it's gonna hold up for you. <laughs> Well, science was produced in, in France before porcelain was, um, uh, because it was, you know, sort of not um, difficult to figure out how to make it, since it's a pretty basic earthenware. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, in, in France and in many other places, faience and porcelain were often produced side by side, um, and by the same factories, um, and um, so that's one of the connections. Is, it's sometimes said that faience and porcelain was often produced by the same factories because they used faience to sort of protect uh, the soft or the porcelain in the kiln, surrounded it with faience, and then the precious porcelain in the middle was protected. Don't really know if that was the case, but often that is the case that they are manufactured uh, by early on anyway uh, by the same factories. No, as I said, actually, uh, Brian Costello, I spoke with him, and he, he's done a lot of work with inventories. And he's found, I think maybe he told me there was one reference to French porcelain in uh, literally hundreds of uh, inventories that he's looked at. So really, there is very little evidence. I'm sure it was there. Um, as I said, it was available, we know, um, here in New Orleans. Um, so people could buy it, um, and you could, you know, people traveled to Europe. Um, and bought it there, but there is very little documentary evidence uh, for its for its existence in those places. And as I said, also very little evidence of, of ownership. Um, so, what were the in your research? What were some of the other larger retailers of Paris porcelain besides New Orleans? Besides New Orleans. Um, I only looked at the newspapers, well, the Louisiana newspapers, and the only advertisements that were listed were for dealers uh, located here in New Orleans. Um, 